And now for the first time in human history, we are really hitting the planetary boundaries. Nature is saying to us, you've gone too far. This is The Butterfly Effect, a podcast that shows the big impact a small action can do. Tali Orat is talking to those special people that make a difference with nature and trees. Welcome everyone to The Butterfly Effect. My name is Tali Orad. I'm your host and your butterfly here. Today, I'm excited to have Alexander Verbeck on the show. Alexander is a Dutch environmentalist, public speaker, diplomat, and a former strategic policy advisor at the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Over the past 30 years, he has worked on international security, humanitarian and geopolitical risk issues, and linkage to the earth-accelerating environmental crisis. Currently, Alexander is a policy director at the Environmental and Developmental Resource Center in Brussels, and an independent advisor on global issues related to climate, security, water, food, energy, and resources. He collaborates with governments, businesses, think tanks, and civil societies agencies to create solutions for planetary challenges for the 21st centuries. He is a World Fellow at Yale University and has been an associate at Stockholm Environment Institute, the Stockholm International Water Institute, a visiting fellow at the Peace and Conflict Department of Uppsala University in Sweden. He sits on the board of advisors of several international environmental initiatives and is an associate fellow at the Geneva Center for Security Policies. He's an influential leader on climate change, and there is much more to introduce him by, but at this point, I think it's best you hear from him. Welcome, Alexander, to The Butterfly Effect. Hi, Tali. Happy to join. That was a long introduction on my end. Is there anything you'd like to add? I'm a human geographer from, from the Netherlands. I studied human geography. I was an officer in the Navy for a while. I even ran a printing company for a while, but then I decided to become a diplomat. I've been a diplomat for some 25 years or so until I left diplomacy. And I work now independently, mainly to, to create more awareness about climate change. And I'm involved in all kinds of projects that are related to climate change, or as I normally say, planetary change. So it's, it's, it's more than just climate change. It's also the, the loss of biodiversity and the, and the scarcity of resources and all kinds of of other things, how we are changing our planet and how that will impact our lives and how we can change our behavior to keep this planet a, a livable place for the next generations. And I know you started connecting with nature where, when your grandfather introduced you to Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> <laughs> Was this the turning point in your life, meaning where you got environmental consciousness it might have planted the roots of some let's say connection to environment i think i i must have been six or so and and we were with the whole family including my my grandfather who was born in 1900 and he uh, used to be a history teacher and we we were on an island in in the north of the netherlands where you have some beautiful islands and i, I think everybody went to the beach but i i had a flu or something somehow i stayed home with my grandfather and then he uh, told that story of Robinson Crusoe, and I, 
I don't think it made me an environmentalist. I don't think Robinson Crusoe was, although that's an interesting perspective to write about someday. He was quite sustainable in, in many ways. It gave me a kind of love for islands. All my life, I've been reading and collecting books about islands. It's always fascinating uh, history. It's like mm-hmm. it's like the whole world in a very small, isolated place, which you can study and understand if you have a small community on an island. It's interesting that you mentioned that because, in, in a way, islands are ecosystem. And because they are being a small, separate ecosystem, they can provide a good representation to the situation we are facing and can help us understand the future we may be facing. I mean, they are highly sensitive to any temperature change. So any change in the environment, in the climate, will affect the island. Yeah, that is true. Well, um, uh, while you're saying this, I'm thinking about this famous picture, I think from... um 1968, just before they went to, so it must be the, the Apollo 9 or 10 or something of Earth rise. So they had not been on the moon yet. They were circling around the moon. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, a human being, this astronaut, sees the Earth coming up. And, and that's that's a kind of icon for environmentalist movement. It, it shows the, the isolation, how small our planet is now, how vulnerable. So that's a kind of island in space. What's happening now to our planet is, is often compared to, uh, let's say, the famous Easter Island story, Rapa Nui. Mm-hmm. Basically, it is that they were stuck there out in, in, in the eastern part of the Pacific, building a beautiful culture. And at the height of their culture, they just ran out of resources. And uh, they'd been cutting all the trees that they that they needed to build, all those, uh, those moais, those statues. A thriving culture uh, collapsed. Whether that's really true or not with Eastern Islands, there's, there's all kinds of theories and, and every year you get a new theory. But this kind of principle you have seen on many, many different islands. Take an island like Pitcairn, for instance, where the, the mutinous of the bounty left so in, in 1789. They set uh, Captain Bly, the, the captain of the ship, and his loyal men were put overboard in a, in a small barge. And with the ship, the bounty, they first sailed to another island and then finally they ended up in Tahiti where they picked up their uh, girlfriends they've been there before and they sailed far away to a completely small unknown island that had been seen only once years before and they they made a settlement there and they lived there and were only rediscovered much much later in the next century and then they were growing too big and they were consuming too much and the island couldn't sustain them anymore and and finally they wrote to Queen Victoria, can you give us another island? So she sent a, a ship and in the mid-19th century, they were sailed to Norfolk Island, much bigger, in uh, closer to New Zealand. And mm-hmm. they lived there. And that is an option that we don't have. I mean, we are now, we're kind of abusing our planet, using too much of the resources. We're, we're destroying right. the global ecosystem. Although there are some Elon Musk types that, that believe that we can all step in a rocket and go somewhere else. That is just not an option. This is the only place we are. We are more isolated here than those Pitcairners were on, on their little island. Yeah, we, we can't. I mean, Mars is an option, but not in the near future. And it's a boring place. Why would you go to Mars? You've got a beautiful <laughs> planet there. On the other hand, I, I feel like human population is, is growing, as you said, and, and our planet is not, if I'm taking your that that story and extracting it to where we are right now. So population is growing. Planet Earth stays the same. 
as you said, we, we can go to Mars or any other planet, then what other options do we have? I think it's too easy to say that the growth of the population is the thing. I mean, the, the key thing is that we consume too much. We burn too much fossil fuels. We slash our forest. We pollute too much. And that is not so much done by the whole population in the world. It is a, a small part of that population, let's say the, 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 the richer people in the world. I believe the numbers are now something like the top 1% richest people on the planet produces twice as much CO2 as the bottom 50% of the planet. If those bottom 50% of the people on this planet, if, if there are some, some extra children born there, that is not so much detrimental to our planet. I believe we should stop growing and it would have been better if we should, should have stopped earlier. But it's much more about all the other things. So if uh, you have to look at the key problem that we produce too much CO2, that is has a number of reasons, but the main reason is, is the burning of, of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. especially coal and, and, and then to a lesser extent oil and a little bit better is gas, but all of them is a bad thing. So the problem lies with out of the 200 countries in the world, it's basically, let's say, a top 20 countries that produce about 80% of the problem. And that's producing it, but we also have CO2 that's already there that we need to take care of and extract it out of it yes i mean I, i'm not <laughs> I'm, I'm, i'm a huge fan of it if we can but this is basically just on the design tables right uh, since we don't have that technology yet and i believe we should invest in trying to create it we don't have the luxury of time to wait for all those kind of new inventions and we have right now already all the knowledge and all the techniques in the world to stop climate change so what we need is not so much new technology, although I, I would applaud it. What we need is new policies. We just need better governance. You know, for those of us on this planet that have the right to vote, we should vote for leaders that have a long-term vision and that believe in science and that take the right measures to save this planet and to preserve this planet for future generations. And we can do it. It's all available. So it's just a question of priorities. I mean, take now this strange year of 2020 that will go in the history books as, as a kind of really odd one, or maybe in the history books as, you know, the, the first dip into the Anthropocene, this new geological epoch that we're, we're living in, uh, where everything will be, will be different. If you look now at the measures taken, I mean, why are we spending so much money to save all our national airlines? I mean, they are heavily polluting. Use that money to make, for instance, fast-speed uh, rail connections or invest mm -hmm. in electrical bicycles and better bicycle paths. And ultimately, it's not just those kind of measures. You have to move to a completely different system of how we run our countries and how we run our planet, where you should define your aim of governance differently than it is now. It's now all about the growth of the, of the gross national domestic product. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be about just economic growth. It should be about, are the people happy and healthy and safe? How do we create the best society for our people? And if that is your aim, those that have the most interest in economic growth, and that is the, the big companies that you should reduce their influence. So you mentioned the rich countries. One thing I want us 
to come like or have listeners envision is we all saw this famous image of the polar bear floating on a tiny island that is slowly melting away. And this is one effect of climate change among other signs. And we see it, we see it on social media, most of us in, in rich countries, but it doesn't affect us directly. So we don't really understand. Or we say it's not, we can't really do much. But here I, I want us to talk about there are indirect effects that are affecting us, are affecting the rich countries as well, and some that have huge impact on society. And I know you you advocate a lot about that and you share a lot of stories, and I would love if you can share some of them here. Maybe starting in where the ice bears live in the Arctic, people feel that, you know, that's something far away. Most people will never, ever go there in their lives, etc. But what is often said is that the Arctic is not like Vegas. You know, you can't say that what happens in the Arctic stays in the Arctic. The Arctic is rapidly warming. It's warming much faster than the rest of the planet. What does that mean? Well, for instance, in the, the latest data from October indicate that there are 60% less sea ice than the average of the past 40 years. And the Arctic is the thermostat of, of our planet. And if that changes, all the patterns of climate and the weather impacts in the world are changing. Um, so the, the, the jet stream is changing and you have to see that. Okay, wait, 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 pause. Can you explain that? Okay, so if you have a river that goes steeply down, it goes kind of straight and it has a lot of power. But if a river comes in a flat uh, delta uh, landscape uh, where it's more more flat land, it starts to, to meander and it loses its strength. And that is a bit happening to, to the jet stream now. There, it, it normally derives its, its energy from the difference between the warms in the tropics and the cold in the Arctic. But now that the difference is getting less, it impacts this kind of river, this jet stream that, that so much impacts um, our weather patterns because it starts to, to meander more. And it's not just that the weather is changing, it's also that this changed weather stays longer on one place. So you get all kinds of weather extremes. So what is happening in the Arctic will impact uh, the climate everywhere. So And then... Going back to your question, what does this climate change really mean? Well, apart from the most obvious things that in the past, let's say five years or so, I think everybody of us has experienced, you know, more heat waves. We see the forest fires in, in Australia. We all remember the pictures of the koalas earlier this year. And then we saw the forest fires in, you know, California. There's a lot of similar impacts that you see less in the media. So if you, if you look at uh, the non-Western countries, they have more climate change impacts, but it gets less attention. Right. So those are the direct effects. And now let's go back to the indirect. Daily, thousands of people migrate away from uh, the coastlines to often the bigger cities. I mean, take a country like Bangladesh. Uh, they, they've reached the point that, you know, from now on, we can no longer live here and we have to move. And that happens in many places in the world. So you see a lot of migration movements that could be either for sea level rise or it could be because of, of heat and that your harvest failed. There's too much drought. It could also be flooding and other reasons. But it also means that people lose their livelihood. It trips a lot of people just over, over the edge back into poverty. And after decades of lifting hundreds of millions, uh, literally billions of people in the world out of poverty, 
a lot of that progress that we've made altogether in the world may now be lost and people go back into poverty in situations where there's just no way that they can still get out of that and that makes people more vulnerable for all kinds of forms of abuse there's for instance research on an increase in child marriages because families have like four or five children and the youngest children are really threatening to die out of hunger and then marrying off your girls that are sometimes just 12 13 years old and getting a little bit of money for that that you can use for your other children that otherwise are starving that is the kind of horrible moral dilemmas that families find themselves in in many places i mean these are huge numbers Mm-hmm. That is the kind of indirect impact of climate change that is much more than that ice beer on that tiny little island. So that seems like human rights and climate change go hand in hand. Yes. And if we care yeah. for one, yeah. we need to address both. Yeah. And it will also affect our, our food, not just that. So if I say, okay, I'm still not living in Bangladesh, my kids can... I can still provide them. I will maybe not uh, because there will be a competition to my job as I will see migration, right? And there will also be an effect on the quality of food I'm buying. So even though I really want to, I can't. Well, first of all, I, I, I doubt if migration so much threatens uh, jobs in, in, in the countries uh, where, where these people go to. But that's a different debate. But I think food-wise, if we would all show more solidarity in the world, I believe we should just stop eating meat. The bigger impact of the food industry, the way that we've created our food now, that has a huge impact on climate change. So if you want to do one thing yourself to make sure that you know those people in Bangladesh still have food in the future well an easy thing that you can do is that next time you're in the supermarket you don't buy meat but you just buy a plant-based product that is nowadays tasting exactly the same as meat meat has a huge huge impact on on climate change is not only the the, the cow burps of, of methane we are using an area of land in the world equal to all of South America. Just to grow them. For, for producing meat. Mm-hmm. Imagine you would not do that and you would just keep the forest there. We need those forests. They're, they're the lungs of the world. And they're now rapidly being destroyed. I think it's it's a moral obligation to eat at least less meat. You maybe don't have to stop eating meat, but right. that creates better conditions on this planet far away from where you live. So you give other people, you know, a life and a future. You mentioned two things. One is preserving the forest. And the second thing is at the beginning, you mentioned, I wish there was a machine that we could invent to extract the CO2. And in my head, there is, and it's called the trees. Yeah, exactly. We- <laughs> well, we have up till now, you know, it's there, it's free. It's, it's yes, yeah. we need to preserve them. And we need to plant more. And that's what we're doing in one trillion. We, we plant with communities. The goal for that, by the way, is for people to learn the dependencies between nature and their actual life. Is it a good life, a better life? In, in my opinion, I think both are 
equally important, preserving forests and planting new trees? Well, they're both very important. I don't think they're equally important. I think it's more important to preserve the forest that we still have because they have a richer biodiversity than when you replant a new forest. Mm-hmm. I, I do support both very much. Also for the point that you just mentioned, that if you, you, know, if you learn children plant a tree, or preferably plant many trees, you teach them that connection to nature. You mentioned my grandfather in the beginning. Uh, he, was, he was a farmer's uh, son. Whenever he stayed with my family, he always took me in the garden and taught me about growing plants, etc. I believe that many, many people that live in cities now lost that, that connection. What is, for instance, an initiative that I like very much is called the tiny forests. Often in an urban area, you take a piece of land that is as small as about a tennis court. Mm -hmm. And there you plant native trees. You plant them very close together. They have a remarkable impact in in many ways. First of all, they capture carbon, which is good. But it brings a bit of nature in a very urbanized area. And that does a lot with people. Any... Any research that has been done on how people respond to nature is is amazing how good it is for you. Any of your friends that you know that have been stressed that they couldn't work anymore have been advised by their doctors, go and walk in a forest because it's that's that's the best way to heal and i notice it myself you know when when i'm i i love walking in in nature when i'm there i i become a different person i i feel more connected to nature and since not everybody can always go into nature which is typically something from you know the people know that you you go to nature you know you're not part of nature you 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 visit it separate like you go you know i'm going to visit art in a museum There was a research recently, well, maybe a couple of years ago now, in the UK that 10% of the children in the past year has not spent a single minute in nature. And nature was defined as wide as uh, going to a beach or going to a city park. 10% has never set foot in nature in in the past year. Uh, What does that do to, you know, that generation? That That is the generation that is really really going to be impacted on a massive scale by by climate change right so they're going to be hit by nature but they don't know what nature is i think it should be part of education education should creating much more awareness of the world that we live in and how that world is changing many teachers probably want to do that but i i don't think the curriculum gives them enough time to do so so again this is also a government issue and you say curriculum, and then for me, I'm thinking part of a curriculum is, is science and part of a cu- curriculum should be going outside. And I'm just curious, I don't know if you have the answer of how we ended up here. What went wrong through the, the, the process of, I mean, I'm a parent. Yeah. I hope I teach my kids about nature. This model that, that we live on now, this, this neoliberal model of, of running our society and our economy that's been on for about whatever let's say 250 years by now but the flaw there is that we missed out on the environment and that has for a long time since the world is so big we got away with it and now for the first time in human history we are really hitting the planetary boundaries and now nature is saying to us you've gone too far you've ignored 
nature. And you see now with, you know, climate change, pollution, plastic in the ocean, and, and, and the loss of biodiversity, we are now at the point that this model is not working for us anymore. So where have we gone wrong? Well, maybe there wasn't another way to make that progress, or we were too late to realize it. I think the first real warnings were, were the Club of Rome in the, in the early 1970s. Their main conclusion of their big first report says that somewhere between now and 100 years, somewhere in that 100-year period, we are going to reach the limits of growth. And we're now exactly halfway in those 100 years. Mm-hmm. And this is the point that we are reaching those limits. So what can we do? There's not one single silver bullet that's going to change all this. We, we have to work on many, many fronts uh, together. And the, the biggest emergency is climate change, quickly followed by a second huge one, which is the loss of nature. For instance, at all the animals on the land on this planet, you would look at their weight, 96% of those animals is either humans or livestock. Only 4% is still wildlife. And that is what is left. And we've gone way too far. That's another good reason, by the way, to, to stop eating all those animals and, and use that space for rewilding Give them back to nature, plant forests, let wildlife roam free there. It's better for everybody and it's better for the planet. Do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? Is there hope for us? I can't live without hope, so there should be. I have read and heard and spoken to so many people. I know so much about what is going to happen and it is so horrible. It literally keeps me awake at night. On the other hand... Yes, there is hope because we have the solutions. We know how to do it. We only have to change our behavior. It's not that the Titanic is sinking and there's there right. is no lifeboats. It is just we can we can still repair this Titanic. We just have to stop playing the violins and the orchestra and the dancing and whatever went on. We know how to repair the thing. We know how to change our behavior. And there is, I thought this year was a complete nightmare in, in many ways. The pandemic was, of course, one thing. It gives a little bit of a taste of kind of future because this pandemic is not completely unrelated to what we're talking about. Because if you destroy nature, the animals are migrating too and you bring animal species together that normally don't meet. And that increases pandemics. That's what the World Health Organization has been warning for all along. Recently, I got more hope. That has, I think, a lot to do with the developments in the United States that reason has won and and that people that believe in science and that respect other people and nature are uh, going to be back in charge. I think that really gives hope because the U.S. is still, even after all that happened in the past few years, it's still a leader, if not the leader in the world. We also just saw the Climate uh, Ambition uh, Summit where you see how how the UN is stepping up and how how many countries got active there. I think the EU is really stepping up their act. Of course, as an environmentalist, I would like to see them do more, but I think it's diplomatically a masterpiece how far they got with such a diverse group of 27 countries that they found this compromise. Yes, it can be better, but yes, it's also a very, very good step forward. Even China, you know, not not uh, the classical example of an environmentally conscious uh, country, has set now their ambitions for uh, 2060 and has 
something that was missing since September. They have now also set an intermediary goal. These are three major sources of the problem that we're talking about. If you have the EU and you have the US and you have China, that gives hope. And all of them could do more, of course. But yeah, you have to start somewhere. You know, you won't, you won't have the ultimate solution uh, tomorrow. Those things go by steps. And these steps are going in the right direction. So it's now a question of, you know, scaling up, raising the ambition and convincing people that we should all be on board uh, to save this planet. So you brought up countries and as a diplomat, um, that's the hat you have on and that's what you focus on. But the average individual will say, "I well, there's nothing I can do. Well, maybe I can stop eating meat, but my few pounds of meat that I eat are not going to be substantial to changing that. And I think that's there. there are steps that us individual can take. And I wonder if, if you can share some of those tips so people will not feel as they're helpless or they're just on that ship listening to the violin and sinking with it. Yeah, first of all, I'm, I'm not speaking now as a diplomat. I've been a diplomat for a long time and I'm now for, for quite a while already on, on unpaid leave and, and doing, doing my own thing the past few years. There is a lot you can do. One of the main things you can do, and that's what we just saw happening in the US, is vote out a government that doesn't do enough for the environment and voting a government that gives it a higher priority. Mm -hmm. I think the, the argument of I'm not going to stop eating meat or I'm not going to fly less because somebody else should start. That is often referred to as, you know, the tragedy of the commons. Uh, countries do the same thing, you know, they all point at another country because the other one should start first and then, then nothing happens. That is not true. You you can do a lot of things yourself, you know, just in your everyday life. I think stop eating meat, that is that is one thing, but also things like, you know, isolating your house, put the temperature a little bit less high, grab your bicycle instead of stepping in a car, it's better for your health as well and it's more enjoyable. Simple things like what kind of light bulb are you using? Don't put your clothes in a dryer. If you've washed your clothes, just hang them out instead of a dryer. Use a lot of energy. Yeah. And try to use renewables. You know, either put solar panels on your roof, or if not, uh, paint your roof white. That also helps. It reflects uh, the sun a bit. Basically, yeah. consume less. Create less waste. So waste is, is a huge problem, and it's also a big challenge as... Everything is wrapped up and, and we kind of like used to see everything wrapped up and it becomes a norm that we need to work on changing to be one of the things we should change. We need to educate the next generation about the environment. And the odd thing is, it's now the other way around. Greta Thunberg and all of the other young climate leaders, they are now teaching their parents and their parents' generation how we should take care of the the planet. I mean, that is such a strange moment in history. If I summarize all your suggestions, they're more in making the environmental conscious decision. When we purchase something, when we vote, when we eat, when we commute, basically in, in every aspect in our lives. And, yeah. and I think yeah. once we have that guideline guiding us through every decision, we'll have a better chance in impacting 
our personal and the world. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think we should overestimate what you as an individual can do. I think ultimately the only way that we can really save this planet is by really changing changing the whole system, how we have organized everything. And for that, we need government. So we really need a very environmental conscious government. So, so that brings me back to, I think, the first point I mentioned, voting is maybe the best thing you can do. And maybe a second best thing is become an activist for nature. That doesn't have to be that, you know, you're the next uh, Al Gore or something. It can just be very local in your own community. Yeah, create more attention for what is going on on this planet and what impact it will have. So another point I want to bring up is the collective conscious, or you can also call it global conscious. We should all consider ourselves as part of a group and, and not just a collection of individuals and that everything, every action we do in a way affects others and we're not alone. It's not just us. It's a question of justice. I mean, there's so much in this world what is what is unfair. Just take climate change. It is hitting the poor people in the poor countries more than the rich people in the rich countries. Now look at who created the problem. Well, that's of course, that's the latter group. That is the rich people in the rich countries created the problem and other people are suffering from it. We will need a lot of uh, solidarity in the world to tackle this, this problem together and make this world a more fair world where everybody can be happy. If we continue on the track that we are on now, uh, then, then we are lost. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see that increasingly governments are seeing this. The examples I just gave, I mean, they, they, that, that gives hope. We are not there yet. I must say a lot of companies are really doing the right thing and are really becoming more sustainable and take their responsibility. And that is not just, you know, some kind of greenwashing or marketing campaign that is really felt within the top levels and and lower levels as well within companies that they should change i think as consumers we should also be aware of you know who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and know where where you know where you spend your money i'm with you on that do you have a favorite tree i spent quite a few months months a year um, on an island in the netherlands if i dare cycles through the forest and then through the dunes and i come to this beach where hardly anybody goes these these beautiful white beaches in in southwest of the netherlands there's on top of one of these dunes there's one tiny tree that shouldn't be there because they're blown away by the wind and there's no other tree on all those tops of those dunes and this one little tree that is not very impressive it is it is maybe not much higher than i am it's maybe three meters high withstanding all the all all the wind and the drought that it experienced there and i think that is such a such a brave little tree and it's it's been there for many years and all time that i come there it's like ah my my tree is still there it's 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 not an impressive sequoia or something it doesn't have to be what type of tree is that i've I've no idea you're from the netherlands how do you say tree in dutch we pronounce it as boom you spell it as b double double o m it's that would be boom in english but we pronounce it as boom the plural is bowman several bowmen and a small one is called a bon pieu 
Yeah, we definitely need more Bowman. <laughs> we do, yeah. <laughs> thank you, Alexander, for everything. I really appreciate what you're doing. Great. Uh, thank you. And uh, it, was, it was great talking to you, Tali. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. We are all beautiful butterflies, each in his and her individual ways. I wanted to thank you for joining me today in this episode. I really appreciate you coming on this journey with me, and I hope to see you next time. And remember, it only takes a small action to make a big difference. Be a butterfly. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. Please subscribe to hear more of our stories of change. 